there is hope everywhere in every square centimeter of Africa. And we have to make this hope real for everybody, for the benefit of the world, but also for the benefit of Africa. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ako Esan Emil, who is based in Democratic Republic of Congo, but he is from Cote d'Ivoire. He is a senior project manager for Search for Common Ground. And Ako was a 2019 Obama Foundation Leader for Africa. He was also a 2019 Institute for Economics and Peace Ambassador and a 2015 Young African Leaders Initiative Washington Fellow. I met Ako around the 2015 elections in Cote d'Ivoire to document his work around a community radio station promoting peaceful messages ahead of the country's presidential election. That experience taught me a lot about the history of Cote d'Ivoire and I'm lucky to have become friends with Ako. So, so great to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. So could we begin by talking about where you grew up and what were some of the influences that led you to peace building? Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ivan, uh, for this opportunity to, to talk with you. Uh, well, you said it, I'm Ako Emil, uh, I'm an Ivorian, but I work currently in the DRC. Uh, well, I grew up in a village, uh, which is uh, now progressively becoming a town. It's known as uh, Abongwa in Eastern Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, my grandfather, who was uh, an old man, was uh, you know, basically the first figure who nurtured me. Uh, in addition to my mother and my stepfather. So I developed a, quite a strong bond with my grandfather at the time when I was, uh, yeah, uh, when I came to, uh, yeah, to Earth, he was uh, already very old, so he could barely walk. Uh, and uh, people joke uh, saying that I became his legs because it will send me everywhere, you know, in the village to carry his messages to people in the, in the family and across the village. So he used to tell me tales and uh, also his uh, own experience, his own lived experience, uh, all the way from the colonial era uh, till, uh, you know, it, this was in the, in the 90s, in the 90s. So from the colonial era, uh, uh, I didn't know really his age, so I can't say exactly when. But uh, based on the stories that and the, the stories that he told, I think this were around the uh, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. So yeah. Uh, then well, I went to school. I went. Uh, I went to school in the same village, uh, being uh, under you know uh, living with my grandfather. Uh, I went to the primary school, I started reading, and uh, uh, these uh, stories helped me to develop a kind of a sense of curiosity. So I think this is uh, curiosity, but also empathy, because he was an old man, uh, you know, uh, very patient, and uh, uh, yeah, he was respected by people, but at the same time, he tried to teach, you know, things like traditional values, you have to respect elder people. You have to respect people with, uh, a, with you know, uh, specific needs. So don't mock people, don't disobey people, and all these 
I think uh, helped me to develop a kind of empathy. And as you know, empathy is one of the key ingredients in, in peace building. Uh, well, uh, about specific uh, peace building, uh, growing up in the village, we did not have a media. Uh, the only media I had access to were old newspapers that were available in a local shop. So I used to go to the shop, collect these old newspapers, and uh, uh, I encountered, you know, at the time there was uh, the Liberian and Sierra Leonean war uh, going on. Uh, the Liberian war started in 1989 and went on to 2003, and the uh, Sierra Leonean war was almost around the same time. So in these newspapers, there were a lot of articles and pictures about the war in Liberia. And this really were, you know, was my first encounter with armed conflict. And when I will read articles, I will discuss with my grandfather. He was old, uh, he couldn't read or write, but, uh, you know, based on his own experience, he could interpret, comment, and then uh, give me directions or sometimes complain about, you know, uh, how wicked uh, people can be against other people and everything. I think this was uh, the very first, uh, you know, um, encounter with uh, uh, this, this, you know, this desire to work for a, a, a better community. And just to interject, a lot of people's geography is so poor, especially in the United States, but Liberia is just to the west of, of Cote d'Ivoire. And so you share the yeah. border with? Yes, we share border with Liberia exactly. So, in what, uh, uh, so the civil unrest Cote even carried over, and a lot of uh, people were fleeing violence, ended up in in Western Cote d'Ivoire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's it. And okay, so in addition to that, in addition to that, uh, my mother also influenced me. Uh, she's uh, quite uh, a courageous woman. And she instilled in me courage, hard work, and determination, which are also a key ingredient for conflict management and in the field of, of peace building. Uh, the influence my, of my stepfather, I think it was basically, uh, it was the first, he was the one who sent me to school and pay my tuition from primary to the university. So I think uh, it's a combination of, of these, uh, you know, three people uh, that's, uh, made me, you know, you know, uh, growing up. Uh, my grandfather passed away uh, in October 2003 uh, when I just obtained my first secondary school diploma. And uh, this was, uh, you know, uh, a very uh, defining moment in my life. And it was, uh, you know, it was my childhood hero, in fact. And I also got to see a little bit of your uh, personal side when I, I came to, to visit and I saw you in a church and uh, from my understanding, you started learning uh, some translation and uh, that, that for me was a, a very special experience to see you up there, um, both translating, but then also preaching as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to learn English uh, as another language? Well, uh, thank you. Uh, the, I learned basically English at school. Uh, we start learning English uh, basically at the, at the secondary school level in Cote d'Ivoire. So when I went to secondary school uh, around 
1999-2000. So I started learning English. So English was uh, merely a subject at school. So I learned English, but uh, quickly I, uh, my teachers uh, appreciated me. They, they, they thought I was uh, a good student in English, so they encouraged me. And this also, you know, this encouragement helped me to choose English uh, when I entered at the university. So I studied English at the university for, for four years before the war broke out. Uh, but I think basically this is where I started learning English. Uh, then uh, with regard to the church, uh, this was a church in our community. I was uh, at the time a radio host in a community-based radio station called Radio Arcanciel in Abobo. Abobo is uh, a large neighborhood in Abidjan. Uh, in fact, a poor neighborhood. So I was a community a radio host at, uh, at this radio stations. And uh, I was, uh, you know, running a show, a talk show uh, in English. So uh, this led me to meet a lot of people who speak English, basically uh, Liberian Ghanaians and Liber uh, Liberians uh, uh, migrants who are in Cote d'Ivoire. And this is how I met uh, this pastor who had a church. And uh, yes, in fact, uh, a strong bond was developed uh, between us because uh, he was, you know, like uh, a, a, a father, you know, uh, to some extent for me, uh, oriented me, gave uh, advices. So I used to go to his church and because he was an English speaker, it was for me an opportunity to practice what I learned, I was learning or I learned at school. So that's how I started practicing interpretation uh, in this church. Uh, it's been uh, really interesting because it also helped me to develop uh, some capacities and competencies. I work uh, at a time as an interpreter in a language uh, uh, firm in Abidjan. And I think this is uh, something that contributed to, to, to this year to develop these competencies. So, 2011 was a presidential election between Alassane Ouattara and uh, Loren Gbagbo. And there was a lot of content contention around that election that spilled into violence on the streets. Could you talk about what that election was like for you and for people who may not have any understanding of the background of what happened? Well, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh, uh, has a specific uh, history, you know, since the death of uh, the first president of Fouboigny uh, in 1993, uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh, has barely uh, experienced a peaceful election. Uh, in 2010, uh, to be specific, uh, there was uh, a yeah, there was uh, this presidential election, which was uh, the first election in a decade. Usually, uh, normally elections are organized each five years, but because uh, a rebellion broke out in 2002 in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, conditions were not favorable, or at least politicians did not run elections up to 2010 after a long political. Uh, talks, negotiations, and so a long political process. So there were a lot of hope that uh, these, these elections in 2010 will bring about 
you know, stability and uh, close the, the, the chapter of the rebellion that broke out in 2002. So uh, <clears throat> there was a runoff between uh, Alassane Ouattara, who is uh, the current president, but at the time was the challenger and the incumbent at the time was Laurent Gbagbo. So uh, at the end of the elections, you know, uh, when uh, at the end of the elections, there were two, mainly two national institutions who were in charge of organizing the elections. One proclaimed Alassane Ouattara as, uh, you know, the winner of the election. The other one, uh, which was the constitutional court proclaimed Laurent Gbagbo as the winner of the elections. Uh, but each, you know, each institution was led by somebody who was close to the political party of each candidate. So it was a really, you know, a confusing and complex situation. But uh, instead of uh, sitting down and uh, trying to to discuss or you know recount the ballots or find peaceful means to uh, to settle this issue, uh, they chose to use violence. They chose to use violence, and at the time, the UN peacekeeping mission, France, and the international community as a whole uh, supported Alassane Ouattara, who was the challenger, but also you know was uh, a figure of hope and and change for many Ivorians and also for the international community. So they supported him. And unfortunately, this led to a war which claimed the life of about 3,000 people. At the time I was uh, at the university and I was residing at uh, a university, you know, a student hostel in Kokodi. Uh, basically, you know, there was uh, fightings, there was a uh, fear, uh, lootings and all that comes with for violence and uncontrolled you know, war uh, around the city. So we feared for our lives. And because we were students and students were, you know, uh, wrongly or rightfully, you know, rightly uh, accused of being uh, supporters of Laurent Babu, we were easy targets by, you know, fighters of the opposition at the time. So my brothers and I were obliged to flee to our village where we stayed from March to July. Uh, and all this violence, which also even affected our uh, region, but it was less in, you know, in, in the inner country than in Abidjan. So when I came back, it was totally a total chaos in the city. People were living in fear, in anxiety, uh, in insecurity. Uh, and so it was a really difficult and, you know, the social fabric, uh, social cohesion or reconciliation, all these efforts that were undertaken previously, all was, you know, uh, turned down, destroyed. So it was quite a difficult moment. At the time, uh, I was uh, a radio host. Uh, we had a partnership with a few organizations uh, at the time. So we started running radio programs to try to give a floor to the people to express the trauma that they experienced, but at the same time uh, to heal and also to push for reconciliation, for forgiveness and for social cohesion. 
examples, you know, of this anxiety, anxiety and trauma, where that even when you will come with a sound recorder, the Zoom recorder to the people, they will refuse to talk, or sometimes they will even, you know, they were reluctant because they fear that they will be targeted to some extent or, or, or not. So, so this was really difficult, but we push on, and there were also a lot of efforts like, uh, you know, uh, peace and reconciliation commissions uh, that were put together by the government, uh, international organizations supporting also the country. So progressively, uh, you know, life went back to normal. Uh, but at the, you know, deeply, uh, there is, uh, there, there are still wounds that are not even healed up to now. With regard to the uh, 2015 elections, um, having been, you know, uh, my first encounter with war, you know, was, was in newspapers and it was fought thousands of miles away from where I was. But these were a lived experience of war. Uh, so seeing what, that what, election, what what do you yeah, mean yeah. by a thousand miles away from where you lived? Yeah, uh, I said that uh, you know uh, when I was in primary school, I read about the Liberian War uh, and the Sierra Leone War. You know, Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia are away from where I was, so it wasn't. That's the first know, time you heard I about it. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, this time in 2011, I was, you know, in the battleground because the whole city was was uh, basically a battleground, and even uh, you know, uh, bullets uh, were dropping uh, in in our uh, hostel. So, and I, I also saw people shooting, you know, others in the in the street, uh, you know. So these were uh, a very you know, uh, traumatizing, uh, you know, events. So in 2015, uh, there were another elections and we saw that uh, election periods are, you know, uh, could be easy triggers of violence and everything. So we started to produce uh, uh, radio programs to raise the awareness of the populations uh, around the electoral process and everything. But we also realized that uh, sitting in the studio and speaking to the people or talking will not be effective if we do not find a way to go there in the community, discuss with the people and have them uh, express their minds. Uh, so we put together a project and thankfully it was uh, funded by, it was supported by the USAID uh, at the time. So we organized an eight-month uh, long program across the uh, yeah this neighborhood of Abu. We went everywhere, and uh, um, people we gave a floor to people to express their views, but also we provided accurate information about the electoral process, encouraging people to participate in the process uh, in a way that is peaceful, and ultimately. The 2015 elections were peaceful. We cannot uh, say that uh, it's because of what we did that the elections were peaceful in the community, but uh, we think that to some extent we contributed to something. And yeah, this were, these were the experiences in 2015, but also at the same time, in 2015, the opposition was not this strong. So we think that these are some of the uh, of the factors that contributed to a peaceful election in 2015.
And also a part of it was uh, some events that brought together a lot of people and entertainment and messaging to just try to cool the place down a little bit. And a lot of Americans who are ignorant about the history of our own country here and about just the tenu tenuous nature of power and political transitions, I think got a taste of the potential violence around elections here January 6th. Uh, that we still haven't fully um, dealt with and uh, came very close, came five minutes away from actually locking our Congress in their chamber with thousands of people surrounding. And that, that could have been a, a very, very bloody day in, in this nation's history. And I think a lot of people don't really want to think about what could have happened, but we, we dodged a bullet on January 6th. Um, yeah. so, so that's just saying, from from this point in there's a there's a lot of ignorance about just the the political transition process and how how many things need to be put in place to ensure that one side of uh, the losing side can't mount uh, an offensive like that. So just moving on to um, this book that you wrote in and uh, you just released it, I believe. Could you talk about that and um what what it's about well uh you know uh in the same uh, uh, vein with uh, our efforts around elections uh in the lead up to the 2020 presidential elections i initiated this uh, collective uh, book project has a way of inviting ivorian uh, youth to come together express their views their hopes their opinions but also call on the political leaders to engage in, the, in this process with the best interests of the people in mind. Uh, because, uh, you know, our generation has been uh, a whole generation of crisis. I was born uh, uh, in, late, in the uh, late uh, 80s, uh, you know, all the way from the 80s to, to now, uh, the country has known that all sort of uh, you know, crisis. So this generation has uh, uh, a way uh, and want to wanted to yeah to pass across a message to the political leaders that we are we are fed up with uh, violence around the elections. But unfortunately, it wasn't uh, this peaceful. So uh, ultimately, fourteen young Ivorian leaders and some leaders from other nationalities. Uh, submitted the uh, write-ups, uh, which were selected, and uh, we published the book, which is uh, entitled Côte d'Ivoire, pour que demain soit meilleur, devoir pour la paix. In English, it will be Côte d'Ivoire, for a brighter future, voices for peace. And it was published by the French editor, Edelive, in October 2020. Uh, it's uh, a combination of different uh, literary genres and styles, uh, which is, you know, a kind of uh, portrayal of the Ivorian diversity, uh, which is one of our, you know, assets uh, as, as, as a nation. Okay. Um, yeah, it also conveys messages to the political class, uh, asking them to adhere to peace, democracy, and uh, to place people, you know, at the heart of whatever they want to achieve. So this was basically what we did around the elections, but unfortunately, elections were not peaceful, uh, even though the, the crisis, the post-electoral crisis of 2020 
was not long-lived, but it was an indicator that uh, elections are a fragile moment, or at least we choose election moment to, you know, to fight or try to revenge. So this is it. So I do want to talk about the economy because Cotovar was one of the wealthiest economies um, in West Africa and all of Africa in, in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And then obviously issues happened with uh, oil and IMF and other things like that. But to just kind of close out this questioning about the election. So former President Kabagbo was extradited to The Hague in November 2011, where he was charged with crimes against humanity in the International Criminal Court. I think uh, just a side note, it's um, pretty telling that only African leaders have gone through the ICC. Um, and even though there was a lot of issues around the Iraq war in this country, but that's just a side note. If, if, they, if they, they, they deserve, they will go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think more than just African leaders deserve maybe uh, a truth and reconciliation. But so Gabagbo was the first former head of state to be taken into the, the, the court's custody of the ICC. And in 2019, January, the ICC panel dismissed the charges um, because the evidence presented was insufficient to prove he committed crimes against humanity, according to the ICC. And this month, April 2021, President Ouattara stated Gbagbo is free to return to Cote d'Ivoire. And as you mentioned in 2015, the Gbagbo opposition was pretty much decimated at that time. And that may have been a response to um, one of the reasons why things were much more, more peaceful. Uh, I, I'm just curious if you would wanna share any thoughts about this development or, or what you're hearing. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, seriously, uh, I think this should not have happened. This should never happen that uh, uh, an Ivorian leader uh, is sent to the ICC to be, uh, to be you know, uh, prosecuted. But uh, as I said, uh, I think earlier, the political class have failed the people in Cote d'Ivoire. So this trial of Laurent Babo was not much about the trial of uh, you know uh, of the crime that were committed, but it was the trial of the whole political class. So it was the trial of a whole generation, of the you know older generation of leaders who lacked you know uh, the love of the people, the love of the country. So they rule uh, visionless. They rule with for their own interest in mind. So uh, yeah, I think this was uh, all about the trial. So what happened there uh, was uh, the trial of a failure of this class, of this political generation, the older uh, generation. Uh, but we hope that you know with this uh, acquittal and release, uh, it will bring some form of uh, uh, you know uh, understanding to, to, to these leaders. But at the same time, it will bring about a reconciliation within the country. But I doubt. I doubt that this will, this will happen because you know when you listen to the to the narratives to uh, to what is said, you understand that nobody you know draw lessons from all these bloody uh, you know events that uh, mark the history of the of the country. So you know uh, it's also a fact that uh, with the election of President Ouattara in 2010, um, there were a lot of hope 
a lot of hope of change. But uh, yeah, there were a few notable efforts, but the old demons uh, survived. Uh, we still have corruption, a lot of corruption. We still have sectarian narrative. We still have a lack of opportunities for the youth, lack of hope and security. So nothing has changed and uh, yeah. So when I spoke with you in 2015, you talked about the political transition, but you also emphasize that this is just one small moment. The bigger aspect is the economy, that the youth need jobs, need development, need sovereignty to have your own manufacturing base, to have your own energy base and, and all of these other things. And Cote d'Ivoire was an economic powerhouse in West Africa during the 60s and 70s, and then went through the economic crisis that so many countries um, in Africa did in the 1980s due to IMF structural adjustment programs that said you have to cut social services to pay interest on these loans to these banks. Um, and, it, and I read it wasn't not until around 2014 that the gross domestic product reached the level of its peak in the 1970s. So that's over 30 years of stagnation. So I, you still have some of the, the, the most important farming in the, in the world. You have, you're still the nation that is the largest cocoa producer. Uh, could you talk about the policies that can improve the economic prosperity of the people of Cote d'Ivoire? Uh, well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you, you know, uh, for, yeah, since the independence up to even now, uh, the country has relied on the production and export of uh, commodities, raw materials for its economy. Uh, as you know, raw materials cannot sustain, uh, 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 you know, cannot bring about sustainable uh, development to a country or economic growth. So uh, in terms of reform, I think uh, there is uh, an, the choices, the, the, the choices in the terms of our economy were from the colonial era, uh, you know, colonial powers uh, impose a form of uh, agriculture that will, uh, you know, benefit them, but not benefit the people. And when we got independences, unfortunately, many of the African countries continued the same in the same, you know, uh, direction. They did not change anything. Uh, to the extent that now uh, most of what we produce, you know, as country, we do not consume this. We export everything and uh, it's not even manufactured to add any value. So we export everything as raw uh, commodities and items and it doesn't have any value. At the same time, we use uh, uh, this money and we even borrow money to buy food from outside which is ridiculous, you know, uh, like a country like Cote d'Ivoire, which has, uh, you know, uh, the capacity of the potential to produce rice and even sell to other countries, uh, you know, import rice from, from, from China, from Japan, from Thailand, from Vietnam. It doesn't make sense, but it's, uh, you know, it, was, it is based on the political orientation. So there is a need at least if you want to keep on producing cocoa, coffee, and uh, uh, you know, other form of timber and uh, uh, everything, <clears throat> we need to find a way to process some of these so that we add value. Uh, otherwise, we could even choose 
to uh, produce what we can consume for the local market so that there is a form of you know uh, internal growth uh, and a self-sufficiency in terms of food because anytime there is a crisis like uh, the uh, the covid crisis we are going on if we rely on the outside to feed our people we are in trouble so i think there is kind of you know making strong decisions and encourage decisions to orient our uh, economic choices toward the needs of a people and toward the real needs of a country. Uh, so in terms of you know, growth and development, we need also to invest a lot in uh, human development. We have a lot of potential, but if the education system is not strong, if the health system is not strong, uh, at least in terms of energy, we have uh, uh, done well, but uh, there are more that we can we can still do, more that we can still do producing energy for and selling to other countries uh, across Africa and everything. These are going to produce a lot of wealth for the country, and the potential is there. The know-how is there. Uh, the you know the youth. Uh, <clears throat> we have a lot of you know manpower, and these people can 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 work. So it's a uh, a matter of education, a matter of giving them the opportunity, and then they can show what they, what they can do. So uh, there is a need to invest heavily uh, in education, in the health system, and, uh, and also with the help of technology, I think a lot of opportunities will be, will be available. So you almost asked my, answered my next question, uh, but for the audience that doesn't understand this concept of resource and commodity extraction, the most of the value comes in the processing. And that's where you were talking about the value addition. So that yeah. instead of just <clears throat> exporting cocoa beans, raw chocolate beans, you actually create the confectioner and, and chocolates within Cote d'Ivoire. And then that value is 10 times more than just a cocoa bean, if not. And, and Absolutely. you're also increasing the skill set, and you need machinery and mechanisms and you increase efficiencies. So it should absolutely be based in Cote d'Ivoire instead of going all the way to Switzerland or France or anywhere else around there. Uh, so how can France, the US and China play a positive role? I think you've already indicated this. Yeah, I think uh, uh, there are two or uh, you know, three things that uh, uh, many African countries need uh, from uh, you know, our partners, France and the US. I think there is a, a stronger need to support, uh, you know, the call of the population for more accountability for the fight against corruptions. Because you know, many of our countries are poor not because we don't have our resources, but they are poor because of corruptions. And corruption is uh, the first, you know, the first hindrance of development in our countries. So if uh, uh, the fight against corruption can be tightened and uh, our leaders can be held accountable, I think uh, many things will change. So we, we trust, uh, we rely on, on the US and France, especially because, you know, uh, yeah, at the same time, you know, most of this money, which is embezzled by African uh, elites go to Europe in European banks, uh, buying assets in Europe and everything uh, where there is stability. And this doesn't make sense. So if really uh, Europe, uh, the US want to help Africa, I think instead of even uh, bringing aid and uh, you know, uh, development aid, 
there should be more concentration of effort in fighting against corruption. And you will see that the, uh, Africa would not need much aid. Yeah, this is one thing. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, uh, especially for European countries and former colonial powers, there is, uh, there is no balance in terms of, you know, who wins in, in, uh, in trade, who wins in economic negotiations. And this, uh, maybe it worked. It worked for the older generation, but for the younger generation, we can no more work. It cannot work anymore because, you know, I cannot understand why uh, in Niger, uh, a French company will come extract the uranium and then Niger gets only 7% or 17%. You know, it is ridiculous. So there, there is a kind to be, you know, a renegotiation or a rethinking of our uh, partnership and collaborations to go towards something like win-win. I think this is something that we, we really need to. With regard to China, uh, I think, you know, uh, they, there is a need for them, you know, to play with the best interests of the people in mind uh, because uh, the Africans that they are meeting now are no more the Africans of the, you know, of the early 20s or 30s, you know, which were uh, not educated and you could exploit so easily. So there is uh, now a cry from civil societies for more transparency, for uh, you know, uh, better business practices uh, with regard to Chinese deals with African government. And these are uh, some of the governments uh, who are corrupt will not last forever. So if China wants to build strong relationship with Africa, they need to bring in transparency, bring in uh, a mind of win-win uh, other than, uh, you know, uh, this uh, form of sharp power of trying to trick uh, people and take uh, uh, advantage of the asset, this cannot last. And if I can just add on um, two pieces, on the corruption piece, I read somewhere that the corporations don't pay their taxes in, in a lot of these international uh, situations. And if they, for instance, in Africa, if the corporations that are extracting just paid what they're supposed to pay in taxes, that would be something like five times more than all the international aid that is going to Africa. So let's just, that. I mean, I think that's, that's even a bigger corruption than in the national individual level. Um, and, and absolutely deal with the individual corruption that are moving their money into the French banks through a lot of the Francophone, uh, African franc, attached to the, 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 the French banking system. But the, the corporations have to pay their taxes and that's, that's a form of corruption as well. And then the idea of every time a commodity leaves the, the continent or a country in the continent, then gold, physical gold should be shipped into the country. And this, this idea was um, thought about and very articulated by Gaddafi of Libya. And it, it, he had this idea of the African gold dinar where anytime commodities left, it wasn't gonna be uh, something like, okay, we're gonna forgive some debt or it's gonna be this electronic thing. No, it's gonna be the, the, the amount of wealth being taken out has to come back in an actual physical goal that's gonna be held into a central bank to actually strengthen the currency for internal improvements and investments in, in, in an African bank. Um, that, that's something that, I'm, I'm, that would in, increase at least some equality while 
trying to improve the actual domestic manufacturing and, and value added. I don't know if you've heard about that before. Uh, yeah, to some extent, yes. But uh, uh, you know, I think uh, tax exemption to some extent uh, help um, uh, develop uh, or encourage companies to come and build, you know, manufacturers and uh, uh, and industries in in the country and create jobs. So to some extent, you know, this could be uh, accepted. But uh, yes, uh, all this also needs to be negotiated well with the interest of the people in mind. I think uh, this, this is it. So turning to another piece that you wrote, the title is, what if Ufwe Bonye was not the man of peace we were made to believe? Uh, that's probably a very controversial question in some places. Could you talk about what your argument is on this? Well, thank and you. and uh, who, you know, who the founding uh, father was or one of the first presidents? Yeah, uh, you know, Fouboigny, as you said, was uh, the founding father of, uh, of Cote d'Ivoire. He was the first head of state of the country from the independence in, the, in 1960 up to uh, 1993 when he, he died. So, you know, uh, despite an iron, a form of iron fist uh, rule, uh, uh, and also clamp downs on uh, oppositions and uh, even the communities of opposition leaders, he succeeded to build for himself a kind of reputation of uh, a peaceful person, uh, you know, uh, a peaceful leader and uh, even an icon of peace was held as an example in Africa. And he, he even uh, invested a lot of time and effort and energy in trying to settled to some extent the issue around Israel and Palestine and uh, even in some African countries. So in this respect, you know, uh, people uh, celebrate him as, uh, you know, uh, an artisan of peace, as he was called in Cote d'Ivoire. But then, you know, this is a fault for people of our generation. We did not know him much. Our, uh, he died when I was six, year, six years old. So I cannot say anything about Ufobwanyi uh, or, or not. All I know was about uh, what was told to me, what I read and what I, I saw. Uh, but you know, the, uh, so to some extent, the relative stability of a country uh, for these three decades, you know, uh, contributed also to, to build his, this reputation because the whole, West African region was affected by, by war and conflict and Cote d'Ivoire remained like, uh, you know, an island uh, of, 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 of peace. Yeah, but since he, he died, since he passed away, the country has barely known peace. And ironically, you know, at the same time, all these political leaders who are fighting or have been fighting since uh, he passed away claim uh, to be uh, the, the disciples, you know, the disciples of Ufobwai. So I was, I was thinking, how can, you know, a peaceful person who is celebrated has a peace, an icon of peace, produce such bellicose, such warlike leaders, also uh, such warlike disciples. So this was, uh, you know, this uh, what I wanted to uh, it was a kind of uh, questioning 
I wanted to question why can uh, somebody who is uh, renowned or you know celebrated as an icon of peace, and there is even an international uh, peace prize uh, by UNESCO uh, in his name. Why can this person produce warlike leaders and disciples who have been, you know, destroying his uh, uh, his uh, heritage since he passed away? Or uh, is it because, uh, you know, these uh, disciples were not actual disciples, or uh, because, uh, you know, Ufuwa himself was not really a man of peace? So, you know, this was uh, a form of uh, of uh, questioning questioning. But it resonates uh, a lot with the people of my generation because uh, you cannot uh, experience, you cannot live in a country which was, uh, you know, supposed to be the place of peace for everybody, and then no uh, only crisis and war uh, throughout. You know, I'm I'm in my thirties and uh, barely uh, I can recount five years in a row. In, in Cote d'Ivoire when we did not know or experience a conflict or a, a form of violence. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is it. Well, I'll definitely put the essay in the show notes. And for the non-French speakers, there's a very easy Google Translate too. So anyone <laughs> can read it as well in many different languages. So I, I really appreciate your time. There's only a few more questions left. You're right now in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. As some people who know, that's one of the richest places in the world for rare earth minerals and gold deposits. And a lot of the rare earth minerals are exported through the East, through Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, and goes right to China. China often manufactures it and then it ends up in the cell phones in the US and around the world and many different other technologies. So could you just talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing there? Because there, there's also been a tremendous long-term civil, long-term warfare, long-term violence, strife, different folks fighting over different places and there's no weapons manufacturers in Eastern Africa. So um, a lot of it's coming from the Russia, the U US, China, elsewhere. Uh, so I, I would like to just uh, for the audience to just kind of maybe open their eyes to, to what you're seeing in, in your experience. Uh, thank you. You know, uh, like many uh, countries in Africa, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is, uh, you know, another country with huge potentialities and abundance of resources, uh, be it natural resources, human resources and everything. Uh, I think uh, what this country and like many African countries, what they really need is a human development, more investment in human development. And uh, this is what could help uh, this, this country uh, overcome some of the issues it is facing. Uh, but uh, I cannot talk more about <laughs> about this. So I, I wrote uh, and did some studies on the Inga Dam project on the Congo River. And if yeah. that level of infrastructure was put in, it would create something like 45 gigawatts of electricity that could go into internal developments and improvements, not just in the Democratic Republic of Congo, not just in 
creating manufacturing that can then do value add for all of the minerals wealth um, in, uh, in, uh, in around Africa, but it could be exported and could really electrify the entire continent. And I, I know a lot of people are against dams, a lot of people are against development, but something like that could be a godsend in, from what I've studied and researched. So, you know, that, that's been on the, that's been talked about for 50, 60 years now, but, um, you know, maybe one day, and if not that, got to get more, more energy and, and electricity and, and production in, into Africa. So a uh, couple more questions and then we're done. I, so, so many Americans are ignorant about Africa. So what would you like people to know? I know that's a super broad general question. Um, and I know there's so much diversity, uh, but I, I'm, I'm just curious if you could share your thoughts for, for these folks outside who just have no understanding. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, debates uh, questions of uh, uh, Americans not knowing Africa, you know, has, uh, has gone on for, for a while, you know. But uh, I wanted to say that Africa is, uh, you know, a land of opportunity. Uh, the future of the world is, uh, in fact, in Africa. And uh, the only thing that Africa needs are leaders with vision and uh, new forms of partnership that uh, is built on equality, on respect and shared prosperity. Uh, people have to come to Africa. When they come to Africa, they will love it, uh, definitely. Uh, why? Because uh, all these, uh, you know, problems and issues that uh, we face here in Africa are business opportunities, are opportunities to, to develop something for, for even them to, to gain, but also for the continent and for its people also to gain. So there is opportunity everywhere and people have to visit and they will definitely love Africa. It's a land of, you know, opportunity with a welcoming uh, climate and, uh, you know, seasons and uh, the diversity, uh, the people, the colors, and everything is, you know, it's a, it's a wealth that people discover. So is there anything else you would like to add in closing? Well, I think uh, uh, we have to close with, uh, with hope, with, uh, you know, hope in mind. Uh, and I, I want to say that, you know, uh, in Africa, I see opportunity uh, and opportunities everywhere in every square centimeter of Africa. I see hope in, the chil in children. I see hope in young people, in the new generation of leaders in all sectors, economy, politics, social, and everywhere. I see hope in the natural resources of the DRC. I see hope in the buoyant, you know, youth of Nigeria uh, who are really creative. I see hope in the new peace deals uh, that has been harbored between Ethiopia and Eritrea. I see hope in the concerted fight against uh, violent extremism in the Sahel region and the Lake Chad Basin. I see hope in the demonstration and determination of women to get access to opportunities in education and in the call of the youth and civil society actors for more equal, just and freer societies 
in countries everywhere, in Burkina Faso, in Senegal, in everywhere, and in the creativity, innovation, and first for knowledge that is uh, seen everywhere across the, the continent. I see also hope, you know, in uh, the eagerness of young, young Kenyans to work in the, in the feet of uh, uh, Wangari Matai. And, you know, today is uh, Earth Day, uh, the 22nd of April. So there is you no, know, there is hope everywhere in every square centimeter of Africa. And we have to make this hope real for everybody for the benefit of the world, but also for the benefit of Africa. Thank you.